Welcome to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests today are Carol Che and Ariel Evans. Carol Che is a writer based in Los Angeles who occasionally curates. She also runs a site, Another Righteous Transfer, which explores performance in the Los Angeles art scene. Obviously, expertise can really enrich the field of curating. But at the same time, I think there's definitely room for alternate modes of curating and for people who have no idea what they're doing to bring a different perspective, which if you've ever watched a child wander through a museum, you know that they can come up with some really nifty and valuable perspectives sometimes. And there's, I think there's nothing wrong with welcoming that into the museum. Ariel Evans is a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Texas at Austin, where she studies the history of photography, post-war American art, and feminist history. She's the founding editor of Pastelogram, an art publishing collective that encourages serious engagements with living artists and art writers from diverse audiences. I'd like to talk about Jackson Pollock's number nine as an illustration of Bradsbury from Dung's Effect. You know, like that kind of stuff, which sounds like a parody, but it's actually not far off to assume that like 500 words per exhibition will cut it is pretty offensive, I think, to the work itself. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chunk, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org or you can find us on itunes by searching for the people radio please subscribe rate and review the show we're hosted by insert blanc press go to insert and click on the people at the top of the page and there you can find out more about the show carol che and ariel evans welcome to the people yeah welcome guys hello thank, thank you. you hi So um, you are both art writers, among other things, and you've both created your own writing platform. So maybe we could start by you guys talking about those specific platforms. We'll start with you, Carol Che. Okay, um, I've created, I guess I can can lay claim to two platforms. Um, The first one is a blog called Another Righteous Transfer, and it focuses on documenting, exploring, discussing performance art. Uh, happening in Los Angeles. Um, the And I'll start with that one, but the other one I could talk about later is um, Word is a Virus, which is um, a column that I started for Art 21 that deals with um, sort of the intersection between text and literature and um, the visual arts. And that's also ongoing. Um, but the Another Righteous Transfer blog, I started in 2009, and it was essentially in response to a need for writing about performance. Um, there was a lot of performance going on, and at the time I was in graduate school, and I remember that whenever I went out to art happenings with my friends, we would always prioritize performance. Um, I mean, we were always always interested in that medium for, you know, for pushing boundaries, for unpredictability. We were always curious to see where it would go. Um, and I guess from that, I just decided to, to start a blog. It just kind of came to me one day. And the name of the blog actually comes from a performance that was done by two friends of mine um, named Nathan Bachelman and Eric Cervetas. And um, 
they would just sort of do these crazy performances. I think a lot of it was improvised. Maybe some of it was not. And one night we went to see them and the performance was kind of themed around like a new agey self-help kind of a, you know, repetition of motifs. And, um, I don't know, like at one point, I think Eric, like, uh, or Nathan was lying on the floor and Eric like fried an egg next to his head or something like that. Um, but every once in a while they would sort of cheer each other on by saying another righteous transfer. Yeah. And then high five. Um, and I was like, yes, that is a name for my blog. And it started like the next day. And literally the first review was of that performance. Um, I mean, the blog is really pretty free flowing, you know, it's like, if someone came to me and was like, you know, can I just kind of like, you know, get high on LSD, go to a performance and write whatever I feel like, I'd be like, yeah, why not? Sure. You know, (laughs) I'll publish that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really like, there's very little I would say no to, and it's pretty free flowing. Um, and over the years, people have volunteered to contribute things, which I've been very happy about. And Ariel, you run a, a, or you co-founded a, a magazine called Pastelegram, or you found you were the founding editor. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I was at a four-hour noise concert and was bored and came up with an idea, and I was like, I'm gonna do that. So Pastelegram uh, started. It was kind of at a confluence of events. Um, I kind of narrate this better after the fact, but I think for a long time I'd been very uh, unhappy with the kind of art writing I was seeing. Um, and I was and continue to be a graduate student in art history at the University of Texas. And uh, I felt that art historical essays tended to be um, just more overwrought versions of the five paragraph form. And I was like, if I wanted to write that, I would have stayed in high school. Um, so I was unhappy with that. And uh, I had started editing for a magazine called Art Lies, and I'd been working there for several years. And Art Lies closed. And anyway, so I didn't want to stop editing, because I found that to be a really um, creative outlet for all of these ideas. You know, it's essentially a collaboration with a writer for me. And I was drunk and bored and after a while, you can't play Bejeweled Blitz anymore at a concert, so you just somehow come up with an idea, and I did, and um, I sang hi to a bunch of friends and helping me, and what Pastelogram is, which is probably what I should have said first, is uh, it's a print magazine that releases about once a year, and then an online platform for about three to four projects by artists a year. And for each project, what we do is we invite an artist to create a work for us. And then along with that work, we um, collaborate with the artist further to select items from their archive, you know, their source materials, what books they read, what artworks they looked at, um, business letters, documents, whatever uh, might make the most sense that appears in that publication or in that project. So it's kind of a work and then an archive for the work as a single object. And uh, so that was the idea. Um, And I started it with about four people. 
uh, four years ago. And since then, uh, we've managed to get funding from the city of Austin, so we kept going. We worked, just kept working with artists. We now have two other content editors that are also art historians. And we each kind of do our own projects. So what it's become is a art publishing collective more than a magazine. But I still sometimes call it a magazine. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be interested to hear the two of you talk about what, and Ariel, you said it a little bit already, but like talk about what you think the state of art writing is right now, whether it's good or bad or both. We had talked off mic about you guys being interested in uh, the the review specifically and something else. The press release. The press release, right. Yeah. Maybe that's a good jumping off point. Well, maybe um, the first thing that occurs to me is how the landscape has changed probably in response to the needs of, uh, I don't know, the art market, the art world, call it what you will. Um, But also, I think you have to take into account the influence of conceptual art has had a huge influence um, on art writing in general. Um, Let's see. <laughs> well, what did it what did it used to be, and what is it now? Like, how is it how has it changed? Do you think? Good question. I think that probably it used to be a lot more cut and dry and business like. You know, art is produced. Someone has to write about it to promote it. Someone else has to pass judgment on it so that other people can decide whether they want to see it or not. Um, and now. I think that we've had so many blurrings of lines. We've had so much institutional critique. Um, Disciplines have kind of been blurred. I mean, everything has changed so much since, I guess it it would be like mid-century would be when Mm -hmm. the whole art writing industry began. Yeah, and at some point, I mean, artists started taking up the the mantle of writing themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot, you know, that was a big thing say yeah. 60s roughly you know i feel like that became more of a thing as artists like writing at length about yes what they're doing and uh, in a completely different way yeah people like donald judd and mike kelly i mean they made a lot of strides because they couldn't stand what was being written about them they're like oh i just have to do this for myself then you know mm-hmm. and they were in turn really influential on art writers that came after them do you think um, do you think that there's a similar process going on with like curation at hmm. all? Hmm. How so? Well, I just I feel like there's more artists that are also acting as curators in in general, and I I I, I mean I always track I always feel like artists see something going on in the art world and uh, say and for instance here we're talking about art writing, and it just art writers getting it totally wrong, and so artists mm-hmm. coming in and saying well let's do this, and then you saw in the '90s like the kind of the star curators are just curators being such a big deal. Oh, this show Mm -hmm. is curated by, and then I feel like in the last like decade or more, like artists have been increasingly like, it's one of the things that you do as an artist Mm -hmm. or a lot of artists take that up as a task that is important to not just like giving back to the community, but is actually something in which they explore kind of their own ideas about art in general. Um, well, first of all, I think curating and writing like are two different practices that come with Definitely. very different issues. Yeah. Um, the whole like 
anyone can be a curator thing has been getting press like very recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was really interesting about crowd yeah. crowdsourcing curating. Yeah, that was it was a very long article too, but it was like it, it, it was. went through a bunch of different yeah. iterations of that. It had some yeah. really good material in there, and it quoted Helen Molesworth. And Helen and Connie talked about it during their talk That's this right. past week. Yeah. Um, well, I think, and Helen Molesworth, I think it was like, no, this isn't good. As I recall, I think, was she the one saying there was a quote? Yes. Where it was just like this. She maintained yeah. the importance of expertise. Yeah. That, you yeah. know, her approach to uh, curating art or organizing art into themes or years or processes or what have you. Yeah. Um, kind of needed somebody who really knew what they were talking about, who had spent years and years thinking about it. They both felt really strongly um, on that side of the camp. And it was really interesting for me to watch because um, to a certain degree, I agree that obviously expertise can really enrich the field of curating. But at the same time, I think there's definitely room for alternate modes of curating and for people who have no idea what they're doing to bring a different perspective, which, you know, as if you've ever watched a child wander through a museum, you know right. that they can come up with some really nifty and valuable perspectives sometimes. And there's, I think there's nothing wrong with welcoming that into the museum. Like, um, I think the Wall Street Journal was talking in particular about a curator that's taken over at um, the Santa Cruz Museum of Art. And some old school curator had quit because she felt that this new person had just gone way too far when she did this project where she had a bunch of people like camp out in the gallery for like 48 hours and just install a show. Um, And according to the old school curator, she was like, it looked like a bunch of like college kids had like gotten drunk and just, you know, just Mm -hmm. threw some stuff up on the walls. And maybe that was a failed experiment. Who knows? But I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting. And I, I'm of the mind that there's room for both. And I have to admit, I, even though I, you know, overall, I'm really happy that Connie and Helen are where they are because we really need like responsible museum leadership in LA following the Jeffrey Deitch disaster. However, I was slightly disappointed um, that they were both really old school on that issue. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I especially in a place like LA, which is you know has a long history of experimentation. I think there should be room for both. And how, how do you think? Uh, how does like the writing, art writing, relate to that, or does it relate to that same? Is it a similar kind of issue mm. with art writing, or? So then the question would be, can anyone be an art critic? Right. <laughs> yeah, and technically, yes. Technically, yeah. right. We can all have our blogs. <laughs> yeah. Not have, nobody has to read them. <laughs> uh, well, well. I, well. Oh, I was going to point out that you know, um, at least in some ways, you've we've had artists or kind of weird art criticism happening. Since way back, our artists doing their own shows. Mm-hmm. The Impressionist did it, mm-hmm. you know. So there is a long history of it. We might be really talking about issues of visibility mm. and how much access we have to mm-hmm. um, seeing these kinds of artist-driven curated shows or artist writings or people who do- basically mm. non-experts, people who don't know what the fuck they're doing, trying it out anyway. And so... 
you know, because if you go back and look at the 60s and all these self-published magazines, mm-hmm. and there's, um, they're kind of hard to get your hands on these days, mm-hmm. but there is evidence of very similar experimental practices happening mm-hmm. going way back. And what we might be looking at now is that we see more of it because it's our own time. Mm-hmm. It hasn't gotten processed through the grist of the history mill. I, yeah. I think actually the... That's a good point that you bring up. Just uh, it, it becomes an issue of visibility, and I would even say not actually, not necessarily on a historical scale, right. but for today, like, and with art writing, I feel like in general, um, it's it, it's a lot about the venues it in, it's in. Like you said, we could mm-hmm. all have blogs, and you know right. nobody would read it. So it's partially about like the authority that comes from or doesn't uh, from. I feel like different you know, venues that you're writing in. I mean, is that an issue? Mm. Um, you know, I, as much as I would love to think that we're beyond that or that we're going to get beyond that, I have noticed that no matter how phoned in an LA Times review is, it still carries a lot of weight that it's an LA Times review. Right. And like, it's obvious that galleries are really happy that somebody wrote a two paragraph review in the LA Times, even though it might say absolutely nothing. Um, I guess that's kind of upsetting. Like someone could write a really like insightful and carefully crafted review on some random blog and no one would care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and so what would that, so then tell me what would be the issue? Like, what is it that shows up in that two paragraph LA times quote review mm. that is, that does make it problematic or makes it just, you know, as you said, like just basically worthless. What is it about the state of art writing that's making it, and I feel like saying the state of art writing is kind of ridiculous, at least for me to say right now. But, but what makes what makes it good or bad? Like, what do we see that's going on in reviews today that maybe is not so good? Well, with the LA Times, I've noticed that a lot of their reviews seem kind of phoned in. Yeah. And I'm just imagining like certain of their reviewers just going to show after show after show and having to turn in a review like every day. And after a while, it's just, you know, they just their senses mm-hmm. just kind of get dulled and it shows through in the writing. I mean, it's very mechanical. It's like, oh, describe the work and any, you know, maybe some feelings that you had about the work and they're not really edifying or anything. Yeah. So most of them are very boring to read. Yeah. Right, you the know, idea so that they're just descriptive, I feel like I see a lot of that, right. where it's just yeah. someone sort of walking me through and saying, it was blue, and it was square, and mm-hmm. it was on the floor. I liked it. Or even, not even, I liked it. Just it was Actually, blue that square. sounds like an amazing review. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, like, kind of like Ernest Hemingway <laughs> and uh-huh. Gertrude Stein's baby review. Like... <laughs> Oh my God, we should start writing reviews like that. Uh, well, I mean, there's a thing where like everyone can be a gallerist too, you know, like if you can get a space and mm-hmm. you can put up a show, but somehow to me anyway, that seems kind of great. Like there's, it does, I, I don't think there can be enough small spaces. I mean, I'm sure there right. could, but I don't know what that would be like. Like anytime a new small space opens up by a, a single person or a collective, uh, you know, an artist run space as it were like I'm I'm excited even if it's not a great thing it's like that's another it's another opportunity for someone to show something in you know in the context of a gallery even if, if it's a garage or in a warehouse or, or you know or a traditional white cube or whatever but so I don't know what the it's hard for me to kind of suss out why that like I'm always excited to hear that that ha- is happening mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. anybody being a critic or a writer 
you know, I just roll my eyes, you know, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's cool of me. Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, do you agree? Well, I wonder if, I mean, maybe this is kind of a long winded answer to that. Um, so the short form is yes. Uh, but, uh, let's see. Um, I think for one thing, one of our major problems is, is that people that write about art are never trained in writing or very rarely. And also very rarely do they bother to go out and read stuff that's outside of art writing, you know? So often I found that many of the best reviews I've ever gotten to edit or read came out of poets that are simply going to the show and can Mm. spin an experience out of being in the show and what looking at this art was like in Mm. a well-written manner. Whereas from Mm -hmm. people who are trained in the arts, and I've been guilty of this and still sometimes am, Mm -hmm. you know, you go, you get one idea out of it, and then you spend the review trying to convince the person of your Mm. intelligent coming up with the idea. Mm -hmm. And when that was blended in the 90s and early 2000s with the kind of theory speak that we're all starting to fight against right now, that that was like a real doozy. And really alienating to anybody that hadn't like pooped out dairy top for breakfast or whatever, you know, like, because you have to like, to get theory and sorry, let, let me go back. The people that are like spitting out like references to Brecht and Foucault and whatnot mm-hmm. are like 22 year olds. Or somewhere yeah. in their 20s. So there's no way they get that kind of stuff. I barely get it. And I've read Benjamin like once a year. Mm-hmm. And I would never claim to be a theorist or have anything. You know, mm-hmm. I just wrestle with it from time to time and feel bad about myself. And, yeah, you know, look at the yeah. razor by the, by the bathtub sink and uh-huh. like, with urinating or whatever. <laughs> and then, you know... Um, and then try to like recollect my psyche into some semblance of somebody that can do things. But sorry, so long-winded way of saying that unless you're 50, 60, 70 years old, don't mm-hmm. fuck with theory. At least not in public. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's a good takeaway. You know, it's, it's There's it's, one in 30 graduate students who knows their stuff, but it is one in 30. Right. right. And I mean, usually the people that know their stuff know better than to really, um, mm-hmm. you know, theory is a way of understanding the world. And so you need like long life experience. Mm. You need to read a lot of stuff. And then you can kind of shape that into your own philosophy, right? And you don't say like this as idea. A, as opposed to like often theory is used like a blunt instrument. It's like, yeah. you know, because right, right. this. Because, like, you know, right, like it's XYZ like, reference and, you know. Yeah. I'd like to talk about Jackson Pollock's number nine as an illustration of Brecht's Fair from Dung's effect. Uh-huh. You know, like that kind of stuff. Right. Which sounds like a parody, but it's actually not far off. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it is a classic rookie mistake to put theory and methodology mm-hmm. before, like, you know, connecting with the art and... Right you know, sort of foregrounding your own experience and finding your own experience and speaking from that. We're going to return to our conversation with Carol Che and Ariel Evans, but first, a new installment of Notes from the People, 
an ongoing project where we invite the people, past, present, and future to self-produce a short segment on a topic of their choosing. This episode, William Moore of Alameda, California, brings us a series of recordings that explore the city of Oakland, which he made over the course of four months. Oakland! From Oakland. 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 Oakland! 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 Oakland, 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 Oakland. Oakland! 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 Oakland 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 Oakland! Oakland! Now let's return to our conversation with Carol Che and Ariel Evans. Speaking of real writers, you guys brought in some stuff that you wanted to read from your from writers that have influenced you, right? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Let's do it. Or at least a writer I'd like. Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite writers, um, who is Eve Babbitts. And for those who don't know, um, 
Eve Babbitts is probably most famous for being the woman who is photographed playing uh, chess nude with Marcel Duchamp um, during the opening of his Pasadena Art Museum exhibit way back in sometime in the mid-century. Um, wow, thank you, Ariel. Um, but Eve um, was also a really, I think, wonderful writer. Um, she wrote a series of books uh, that were a mix of memoir and fiction um, that basically discussed her wild and beautiful life in Los Angeles um, during a certain period of time um, that just, you know, it really doesn't exist anymore. A lot of the L.A. that she talks about just doesn't exist anymore. Um, but the reason why I really love Eve's writing is that um, sometimes she is just such a ditz and an airhead. Like there are moments of her writing where you're just like, oh my God, what a, what a, what a dim, dim nut, a dimwit. But then there are other moments that are just so like sublimely insightful and so subtle and just capture like aspects of, um, LA life like more effectively than I've than I've seen anyone else capture them in words and I just I love that sort of um flawed combination in Eve and I think it's I don't know it, it might be a bit of a leap but I think it's kind of a quality that's that's germane to Los Angeles in a way um just I I don't know just like um stupidity coexisting with profundity or something like that I, I don't know that's probably not a good way to describe it um but I kind of I kind of would allegorize it with um Jonathan Horowitz's uh 590 dots which is currently up at 356 mission so Jonathan Horowitz does this project they're dots and what he does is he has people come in and just paint a black dot on a canvas 11 inches in diameter um, and each of these painted canvases then go up on a wall and form the complete work. Um, when he was in New York, he did 402 dots. And for that project, he asked for painters only because at the time he was thinking he didn't want to deal with people who didn't know how to push paint around. So if you look at the dots from that project, they're all actually quite uniform. You know, they're all well painted. They're very round. They're pretty much the same size. You know, they just look like they were painted by people who knew what they were doing. Um, he gets to L.A. He gets to 356 Mission, which is run by Laura Owens and Wendy Yao. And he sees the vast diversity of people that parade through that space where a lot of different events happen and a lot of different um creative people come through like not just artists but musicians designers etc cetera, etc cetera. and he was like oh wow this is really interesting you know okay I'll just have anybody do the dots this time and if you go into 356 mission now it's actually hilarious because sure there are some dots that are really well painted and perfect and there are others that look more like horseshoes <laughs> or pyramids <laughs> and some that just kind of fade away in the corner and you're like what happened there you know, I mean, it's hilarious. Like some of these are really not dots. And I don't know, I love it. I think once again, it just shows like the vast diversity that's present in Los Angeles right now. Okay, so I'm going to read a few passages um, from Eve Babbitts that I think kind of kind of show sort of the, the unique beauty of her writing. Um, and what's the particular book you're reading from? Um, this is called Black Swans, and it's actually uh, it's a collection of short stories, and it's one of her later books. 
um, but it's filled with beautiful moments like this one. Okay, so here she's describing one of her friends. I suppose Kate was a hippie. She may have believed in silver boots and looking incredible and had glamour, but not to a fault. At that time, Haley, like the 80s to come, believed in too much. And like most of those women who think you can't have big enough chests, oops, and like most of those women who think you can't have big enough closets, she still didn't look that great. Or at least she never looked kind and beautiful like Kate. She looked mean and stylish, as if she were supposed to be beautiful and you should take her word from it. From afar, she looked a lot better than close up, sort of like America or even LA. Okay, this one short little paragraph. Um, there's this whole long, beautiful story called Expensive Regrets that talks about um, she has an affair with a man where they basically shack up at the Chateau Marmont back when it was like really shabby and they just kind of lose themselves and each other for like a whole week. And while they're doing this, um, the LA riots happen. Um, I think this was, this was probably the Watts riots. And so literally um, the city is burning around them, but they're so lost in each other that they smell the burning and they think it's their passion <laughs> that's burning around them. And they're just on fire. It's such a beautiful chapter. Um, so this is the last paragraph of that chapter. His eyes met mine and once more we slid into an oblivion so intense the whole city of the present could have further gone up in smoke. But it didn't. Around us, we were bathed in jacaranda flames, lavender, sticky clouds, full of cities of the future, which love alone can transpose into hope. Okay, here's a good paragraph. Um, everyone loves to talk about dating and love in L.A., and this captures kind of a good part of it. A lot of my friends, these L.A. types with the sweethearts inside, can't even get divorced with any real hatred. Jed may need invisible lovers who go away before dawn like vampires. Albert is still in love with his ex-wife, and even though she's very mad at him for some of the sleazeball things we all did in past decades, love is love. It's funny because we live in this place where it's so easy to consummate flirtations and it's supposedly easy to get a divorce, but love, once it dyes our hearts purple, won't go away. Especially the kind of love we used to feel when we were young, the kind we wish we could feel again for someone new. Excellent. Well, Ariel... You have something to read as well? Uh, I was going to read from Jill Johnston, who uh, was invited to write a column on dance to, for the Village Voice in the 1960s. And uh, she got into happenings and art performance and intermedia uh, and ends up writing about all of those things, plus the experiences she's having in that space. And it's this... Uh, very fun read, and I kind of, I would like to write like either Ann Carson or Jill Johnston, um, but rather I'm somewhere else in a triangle that's not that good, <laughs> and, and definitely a lot drier than both, but, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, all right, so Marmalade Me uh, by Jill Johnston. This is written in the 1960s. So I thought to write last week on a bunch of poetry events I saw one afternoon, November 17th, at Longview Country Club. About 21 two-minute events by poets organized by Hannah Wiener. But the ivory tower has become the control tower as the naked ape speeds towards the moon. If the flight for the moon oversuits its mark, the announcers will go off the air immediately. 
The families of the astronauts will be notified in person instantly. The president will simultaneously be informed and will then go on the air to advise the population of the disaster. The operation will take 20 minutes exactly. Presumably, the control tower will continue to communicate with the astronauts as they speed toward infinity, sipping their final meals out of their final plastic bags. That might be the ultimate poetry. If all philosophy since 400 BC has been a footnote to Plato, possibly all poetry since Sappho has been preparation for astronautical communications during Operation Sayonara. But I don't really believe it, although I believe everything. The handwriting on the wall is the first mark made by a delighted infant. When did the human animal begin to notice its own footprint as a mark of pleasure, a visible imprint on its environment, another autoerotic involvement, having no functional de design, i.e. the bear follows the tiger to the water's edge, etc. Putting it another way, when did the human animal make a sandcastle out of its own shit after how many eons of dropping it and forgetting it like the horses? Excuse me forgetting it like the horses at the circus. Did the human animal become human when it called itself human? It doesn't matter. I'm thinking of the calling as an invisible mark. The handwriting is current in the air as the sound that became a fury. The sound and motion came first. The sound was the noise of an infant's disapproval at separation from its cave of blood and water. When did the sound become so specified as to signify a particular object? Other animals make such sounds. But so far as we know, they don't get very deep into grammatical complications. Can you write a simple declarative sentence with seven grammatical errors? But I presume all animals enjoy the sounds they make. Do you think that when someone talks just for the sake of talking, he is saying the most original and truthful thing he can say? The sound is a current, is a heartbeat, is a footstep, is a footprint, is a handshake, is one thing you do dead and alive whenever you do anything, and whenever you make a sound, you do everything else too, even eating your words. I suppose the origin of human poetry, as it's classically defined, means the transition from essential sound, expressing a pain or a pleasure, or signifying a need, and later the object who might gratify the need, to the sound made for the sake of making a sound as a pleasurable extension of body sense, not thinking about the next meal or the fine feathers on a new peacock. But I don't believe this either. The ultimate poetry might be that first noise of a shocked infant spilling out of a bloody canal. Moreover, I think it's impossible to separate the pure pleasure of making a play on a bodily extension, sound, motion, etc., from the expressions of the so-called functional needs of food, shelter, affection. The ancient primitive rites demonstrate the wedding of the two and the totality of living, which we compartmentalize through language. Still, we have this thing called art. I have an image of an animal turning back on its tracks to examine the shape of one of its footprints. Maybe he compares the shape to a memory of a footprint he once followed to the water's edge. Maybe he goes home and makes a lot of footprints around the campus just to go back and notice how he made them and how they look alike or different according to the texture and firmness of the ground. Maybe he examines the bottom of his foot to correlate the shape of the foot with the imprint he's making. Exhausting these possibilities might really freak out on directional extensions. I'll just stop there. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. 
We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page to find out more. Uh, I really like that Jill Johnson piece and what it was all about. I mean, it um, really kind of evokes that um, Judson Church era of like a sort of you know utopian yeah. mixing of all the of all the media. Um, and I like that like she gets it done, but she also doesn't allow the medium to constrict her. And she goes off on all these flights of fancy that are really interesting and very expressive. So that's very cool. Well, I think what she did is that she was a writer that, I mean, she's going to the Judson church and she's hanging out with those Mm. people and she's taking their ideas seriously and Mm. transposing it to her own medium, Mm. you know, and being like, what does this look like as an art review. I mean, people were doing that with poetry, you know, like living theater and New York poets theater, kind of these collaborations between artists and poets. And Oh, that's so cool. Know. I didn't know she actually hung out at Judson church. It oh was yeah. Kind of, yeah. It just kind of evokes that era. Tell everyone what that is. Uh, uh, Judson church. Well, it, it's primarily known as a center for experimental dance, but, um, but this was, it kind of, you know, is emblematic of the 60s, like, free mixing of different disciplines and different media. Like, you know, they were kind of breaking down the barriers mm-hmm. that existed between dance, poetry, music, etc. And it's really interesting because since then, the, um, you know, I think in the intervening years, the barriers were built back up. Um, and maybe now we're breaking them down again, I don't know. But, it, and, you know, it was like, John Cage was there, Merce Cunningham. Right. I mean, it was like a uh, kind of the birth of like modern dance in a yeah. way there. I mean, I would say, mm-hmm. but also there were you know the St. Mark's uh, you know mm-hmm. poet series, which you know there's still panels and poets mm-hmm. reading at St. Mark's, and and then also just the theater. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I think I think uh, it's funny because I think you're right in a way. It was like at that time like the barriers being broken down mm-hmm. and though i've only been to saint mark's church like twice mm-hmm. to see poetry readings i get the sense that mm-hmm. like the poetry is the poetry and mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. You what know, do you think built the barriers back up since then capital mm. how um yeah i guess that was kind of an abrupt answer <laughs> <laughs> it was great <laughs> but, my, but my fist went up somehow yeah, yeah. it was crazy you know the the fury of the proletariat was coming out i guess um capital is behind all evil <laughs> well i mean yeah well i mean i i can't i don't I don't think Capital was sitting back twirling its mustache and being like, how can I ruin this? <laughs> but, you know, I think, um, <laughs> I think a couple of things happened. Uh, you know, the 80s were similar in the structure, but a lot of the artists were getting a little bit more attention. And then we have the culture wars and both sides kind of, I mean, obviously, the right-wing conservative Jesse Holmes fucktards were um, just completely wrong, but the left fucked up, too, Mm -hmm. because they're trying to support this work based on some, like, very modernist, like, Mm -hmm. even 19th century French école um, definition of art, i.e. it's beautiful, therefore it's art, even if it's a dude getting taken from behind, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is beautiful depending on, on... 
what you find beautiful, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so they're talking about symphony of line and color and value. And it's like, how about there's just nothing wrong with an image of a dude getting rammed from behind? Mm-hmm. Like, let's make that argument, yeah. right? So they're making an argument based on a definition of art that feeds really easily into the market. So yeah. they redefine this work mm-hmm. based on... Um, it's beautiful, therefore we'll put it in the museum and then, you know, collectors will buy all of the documentation even though it's a Xerox and then it's worth a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. then artists with the NEA grants getting completely gutted realize that in order to live doing what they do, what they want to do, they have to make objects Mm -hmm. or they have to teach. Mm And you think we're breaking those barriers down again, hopefully? Or no? Or they're stronger than ever? Well, Mocha's recent um, Step and Repeat series, like, deliberately was harking back to the 60s and just combining all media in one event. Do you think it's retrograde, though? I mean, I I don't know the answer to that. No, because um, actually a lot of the artists they chose like really do mm-hmm. like actively engage a variety of media in their yeah. work, which is very interesting. Yeah. Like who specifically are you thinking of? Uh, well, like our friend Kate Durbin. Um, mm-hmm. Her poetry readings are very much very performative. Um, well, and on, the, on the poetry lines, I mean, uh, Trisha Lowe as well, who yes. was there, and uh, yes. Vanessa Place. Friend of the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> FOS. Yeah. But, and then performance-wise, like Wu Tsang would be a good example of someone who's... The work is an intersection of media. It's not like, oh, this is necessarily just dance or whatever, or performance art. Like, I feel yeah. like it's kind of limiting to just say that it's just performance art, although it fits under that rubric. Mm-hmm. But maybe that, well, maybe that's, that's that maybe a question for you. Like, you know, how does that phrase performance art, mm-hmm. how does it get a little bit more complex than just like, oh, it's performance art? Mm-hmm. I wonder. I don't know. I mean... Anyway, I kind of jumped into that question when I was mm. talking about something else there. But like Wu saying, it's I mm-hmm. I know it's performance art, but I feel like there's a lot of other operands that come in or kind of yeah. modifiers that come in because club because, culture. Yeah, and yeah. that and just because it is such a like at the intersection of many different media. Yeah, there was um, yeah, really all of the um, I mean, a lot of the acts uh, were new to me. But, like, there was a comedy troupe that had crazy origins. Like, they were, they were both comedy, and they came out of some really specific music genre, like metal, and mm-hmm. uh, and they were about performance art, you know? <laughs> um, and the, they had comedians there also who were very much on the border of, you know, performance art, like Kate Berlant and Neil Hamburger. Um, no, I mean, if you look at the artists they chose, then... Yeah, it seems to be a trend out there. I mean, I think earlier we started talking about the shifting landscape of art writing in terms of what's needed in the art world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we quite... Where did we leave? We kind of left off on that. Yeah, we might have we got just distracted. Kind of gone. I mean, we did want to talk about, like, why art criticism still matters, you know, but what kind of art criticism is useful, not just mm-hmm. describing or... Mm-hmm. Um, advertising basically so if our if our writing is just simply describing a show or just being an advertisement for it whether a press release 
for the show or someone actually writing a review that's basically right. just regurgitating the press release plus a little bit of description that we can, I think we can agree that this is a, that that's a problem. Yeah. Or not mm-hmm. exactly something that we're very excited about. It's like mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it's like if I wanted to know if a reviewer regurgitates the press release, it's like, well, I could have written the, read the press release. I didn't need this. I mean, and to assume that like 500 words per exhibition mm-hmm. will cut it is pretty offensive, I think, to the work itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well... So then is it a question of more editorial space for art writing? Is that that, that we need a more, a deeper engagement for these reviews to like actually work? Or... Not like we're going to solve this problem mm-hmm. today. We're going to solve it right now. <laughs> okay. yeah. is, is the answer not for people like the two of you, you know, to just basically take up the call and write something that's mm-hmm. enjoyable and informative and experiential mm-hmm. for writers to do that and everyone else to then read those and not read a boring descriptive one? Mm-hmm. You know, is that is that not the solution for people to just take up the sword? Call. Yeah, everybody Command should just from. read my writing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, problem solved. Well, <laughs> Bible <laughs> of contemporary art. <laughs> and we're done. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> well, it, 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 it reminds me of like when Dave Hickey is like, I'm leaving the art world because, you know, the market is so is messed up, everything. It's like, you know, actually you, yeah, do, you, you stay, have dude. a position <laughs> as a critic. Right. So if you have a problem with it, and this is a world that you created by your art writing, largely. Like, most of his writing created a lot of the issues that he has with the art world right now. It's like, if you have a problem, then why don't you start writing about things that, why don't you, like, you have a you have a pulpit, you have, like, you know, you can write. So then, you know, write uh-huh. about that. If you, you know, instead of just being like, all right, guys, peace out, you know. I loathe Dave Hickey. Sure. And I, I am. Too. I'm ecstatic. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ecstatic that he's gone. I'm not going to call for him to return. Sure. Bye but, bye, Dave. but he but shat what, on the what, floor what, and like left because he's like, there's shit on the floor. Yeah. Of course, of course he did because he's him. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, who does he think he is? Lou Lozano? <laughs> he wishes. Right. No way. Like a biker rock and roll Lee Lozano. That's what he wishes he were. Well, all of his art reviews were just talking about how he grew up in such a cool place with yeah. such a cool family. And it's like, if I wanted to know about you, I'd like, I don't know. So maybe I shouldn't have yeah, brought up sorry. Dave Hickey. Yeah. I guess no, what I that's a that's a throwing down the gauntlet for Dave Hickey. You're welcome yeah. on the show, Dave. Like anytime, <laughs> come on over. We'll have both of these people back on. Um, but well, uh, sorry, go ahead. But oh. I feel like it's more the question of you know if if it's a problem, then if there's like an issue in our writing, then it's up to. Uh, you know, many of us to do kind of what you guys have already been doing, creating a different platform for our writing and actually taking up the pen or the Mm -hmm. computer or the typewriter, as the case may be, and Mm -hmm. actually writing like the type of credit. I mean, you know, it's the old quote, like, uh, I write books because I read a lot of books and wasn't quite happy with the books that I was reading. So I thought I'd read some others. I mean, I started, you know, it's like I started up Benjamin, but in a much more pithy way. Mm-hmm. way but I mean it's like I started a press because I was kind of upset with the the state of uh, publishing and as far mm-hmm. as like the type of writing being published mm-hmm. or the type of art being put out there so I mean 
a lot of this is like I feel like an old school punk rock aesthetic as an answer. Like if you don't like it, then mm-hmm. like you know do something about it. Right. Do it yourself. In yeah, fact. you have to yeah. be yeah. that egomaniacal to kind yeah. of. Yeah, uh-huh. unfortunately. Right. <laughs> but then you yourself would become an insufferable writer that no one knows. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. There's yeah. just like yeah. A um. Well. Okay. So I. I think that the art world is doing great right now. It's doing gangbusters. It doesn't need any help. So but, but art writing is another story. Art writing is kind of, I, I think it's kind of lacking. You know, maybe it's always been lacking, but, you know, in the present moment, I think it's lacking. And earlier we were talking about, like, you know, people phoning in their reviews. Um, and I do think that overall, like, yeah, more engagement is needed. I would love to see more writers that really engage and really just write strong stuff about it. I think Travis Deal is really good. Like, he's a writer I love to read. Um, who else? Um, well, obviously, Chris Krause uh, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, there was there are some other people. Okay, Anna Mayer. Anna, if you're out there, I wish you would write more about art because that is some of the best art writing I have ever read. But she rarely, but she rarely does it. Yeah, She's true. yeah, another friend of the show. And I throw John Hogan in there. Like mm. his my his piece on Mike Kelly after Mike Kelly passed was the hands down best one I mm. think. Yeah, um, but you know, of the professional writers that are out there, I mean, there are very few that I want to check in with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a whole lot of must-read art writing happening. So, so we'll we'll take that. <laughs> so, Ariel Evans and Carol Che, thank you for being on the people. Thank, thank you. you. So much, guys. What's up, Dave Hickey? <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to the People on K Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. Our theme music, as always, is the song "Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the People Radio. So please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And now we're going to go out with a song from the Chicago-based band Sweet Cobra from their album Mercy. And you can find more of their music at sweetcobra.bandcamp.com. And the name of the song is Silvered. <laughs>